So this morning, um, if you're new, we've been working through looking at um, the life of Moses and the Exodus community. And so today we're in Numbers 11. And so this is the first time we are jumping out of the book of Exodus into the book of Numbers to look at another story relating to our ancestors in the faith who were redeemed from slavery in Egypt. And I want to just remind us of another thing that Keller pointed out regularly, that when we read the Bible, if it makes us feel better about ourselves, um, we're reading it completely backwards. Um, when we read the Bible and we see examples of foolish behavior, it is really meant to be a, a mirror reflecting our own hearts that humbles us so that we can be encouraged by God's grace and love given to us. And so today, um, the passage is long. It's in your bulletin. I'm not going to read the whole thing to start. I'm just going to read the first three verses and then we'll jump in. Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 through 6. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving and the people of Israel also wept again, and they said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we pray by your kind and gracious spirit that your word will go forth to accomplish your purpose. Thank you that you promise it never returns void. So do a great work on our hearts this morning, we ask in Christ's name, amen. So two weeks ago, we looked at Exodus 32, what's arguably one of the saddest chapters in the entire Bible, where God's people, um, panicking that Moses was up on the mountain longer than they expected, turned to Aaron and said, we need you to craft gods that we can worship. And they said, okay, and they formed a golden calf. And the scariest part of that whole scene, in my opinion, is that while they were declaring, here's the gods that actually redeemed you and bowing down to an idol, they said, we're having a feast to Yahweh. Translation, they literally thought they were worshiping Jesus while they were bowing down to idols. And we talked about one of the scariest aspects of our sin nature is that we can be blind to the idols that enslave us. Well, today we have an opportunity in this story to look at another equally scary aspect of our sin nature, but one that's a little bit different. In Romans 7, Paul says this about the war that takes place in the heart of believers. He says, I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but I do not have the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And then he makes this declaration, wretched man that I am, who will be deliver me from this body of death. If you remember in the story, after God redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt with a powerful hand, consistently bestowing his favor on the Israelites while also pouring out his powerful judgment on the Egyptians, he then gave them his law and he says, I'm the Lord your God who redeemed you. Obey my commands and you will enjoy my favor and my grace. And they, in Exodus 24, said, we'll obey everything that you have commanded. And now here we see in this story as they're traveling from Egypt to the promised land, the Lord is still with them, consistently providing for all that they need. Numbers 10, 34 said that the cloud of the Lord was over them by day 
And then in verse 9 of chapter 11, it says that even at night when the dew would fall upon the camp, manna would fall with it. Point being, they had these constant visible physical manifestations of God's presence, his power, and his favor given to them. And they still began to grumble and complain. Evidencing what Paul said, that even though I delight in my heart in God's good law, I constantly find myself doing things that I don't want to do. I told Guzzy this morning when he just said, hey, man, how you doing? I said, well, Stephanie's been out of town since Thursday. And in essence, my only prayer was that I would be gracious and loving to my girls, especially to my daughter, Mary Rachel, who struggles in ways that it's not her fault and she can't help. And then I find myself even praying, Lord, help me to be gracious and patient. And just with question after question, I find myself snapping. And I'm like, Lord, I don't understand my own actions. I want to love the way I've been loved and wretched man that I am. And I share that to say I hope that we can feel not like Paul was just having a bad day, that maybe he was just struggling with depression or these people in this passage are just extremely foolish. But even if we have constant reminders of God's goodness, even if it's just every Sabbath day when we gather together and sing these hymns, it is so hard for us to live with a posture of gratitude instead of complaint. In James 1, he says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above. This is why Brendan Manning, who was a former Catholic priest who struggled with alcohol addiction, said very simply, All of life is grace. Every single breath that we take. Paul Tripp said it this way, and I quote this often, there's only two themes that pull at our heart every day, a theme of complaint or of gratitude. He says, what is your default language? Do you find it easier to complain than to give thanks? Are you easily irritated and quickly impatient? And then I love that he says, <laughs> before you just convince yourself that you're gracious and you don't complain, what would people who live nearest to you <laughs> characterize you as, a thankful or a complaining person? You look at your world and find yourself blown away at the many reasons you have every day to give thanks. Do you see yourself as one who has been showered with blessings? Are you humbled by the myriad of things in your life that you regularly enjoy, but you could never argue that you deserve? How often do you whisper thanks to God or communicate thanks to those around you? Here in this passage today, we know Paul says in Romans 15 that all of these former things were written down for us for, as examples for us to pay attention and remember and to learn and not to seek evil the way they did. We see that after being redeemed in slavery from Egypt, they begin to complain and have a demanding spirit. And notice what it says. It says, now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving and so what the author is telling us is there was a smaller group of people that began to complain and that minority voice became the loudest and that voice became so loud and so powerful that then the next verse says, the people of Israel wept. Later it says that everyone stood at the entrance of their tent. In other words, this complaining and demanding spirit accusing God of not being good took over and spread like wildfire. This is meant to make us stop and pause and consider what effect does my complaining posture have on others or other people's complaining posture have on me? 
And I don't just simply mean when we talk to people, I also mean the people we follow on social media and the news outlets we read, the things that we post and forward to others. If you don't know this already, I'll be Captain Obvious, our entire news media is driven by outrage. They are trying to get dopamine hits by just making us angry, not by just giving us information. And Psalm 1 actually warns us of this. It says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. And and commentators highlight there's a progression here that if you find yourself during the course of the day just walking in the counsel of the wicked, who, and, and, and to define wicked very simply, as Paul does in Romans 1, is those who don't give thanks to God, which he rightly is due, but rather complain and demand and criticize, then you'll find yourself, if you walk in that council regularly, then you'll find yourself standing in that council and then sitting in the seat of scoffers. And so you see this like cancer spreading effect that it has on your heart when you live with a complaining, grumbling spirit. And that's what's happening in the passage. Contrast with, he says, but blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And so we have to be very um, mindful and at least aware of not only am I a complaining more than a grateful person, but, but is the company that I keep leading to salt and light and a gracious posture in our culture, or are we just contributing to the biting and devouring nature that we see all around us? And then notice what happens when you live this way. You don't just begin to have a demanding spirit, but you literally, utterly become a fool. Notice what they're saying. It's ridiculous that God isn't giving us meat. They didn't have a protein deficit issue. They're like, when we lived in Egypt, we didn't even have to pay for all the meat we got, all the fish and all the vegetables, almost like we had this great farm-to-table system we didn't even have to pay for. They were slaves in Egypt. Pharaoh was murdering their children. They had to work seven days a week and make bricks without straw. This is an utter picture of being delusional, forgetting completely God's goodness and his kindness. And Paul says, Romans 1, that this is what happens when you don't live with a posture of gratitude. He says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became foolish and futile in their thinking and their hearts were foolish and darkened, claiming to be wise they became fools. In his book, Inside Out, Larry Crabb says, this is one of the terrible stings about a demanding spirit. This is what I put on the front of your bulletin, is that it feels good. This is like the the counselor I see at Barnabas, Roger always tells me, you're most dangerous when you think you're right, when you've convinced yourself that you're right. He says a disease without symptoms is bad enough, but a disease that increases Our feeling of well-being, while it slowly destroys our health, is much worse. Demandingness is a serious problem, partly because it rarely feels like a problem. We may actually feel stronger and more alive when we pursue our demands and rehearse to ourselves their credibility. It's possible to sense a flush of counterfeit spirituality as we approach God in a vigorous attitude of petition that's fueled by a demanding spirit. And that's why this spread like wildfire so easily, is it felt justified. Oh, yeah, it's not fair that we don't have meat. We have to eat this manna day after day, of course. This is completely ridiculous. God owes us more in that complaining and grumbling turns into a demanding spirit. And it becomes so intense that then Moses begins to add his own request to the Lord. 
verses 10 through 15, it says Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clan. So again, no, notice that. The people aren't just grumbling, but a grumbling spirit grows to such a degree that then you begin to weep and wail because you feel like, you know, an injustice has been done to you. Everyone was at the door of their tent weeping, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where am I to get meat for all this people? They weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, just kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. So in a sense, what we have is two different kind of requests being made. One by the people, convinced by those that the rabble among them that they deserve meat and God was holding out on them. And then Moses' request is the burden of this people is too weighty for me to shepherd so if I have found favor in your sight, just go ahead and take me home to be with you because I cannot handle it. Now, what's interesting is to notice the difference in the ways that God responds. And this highlights, I believe, the difference in desires and demands. And so let's be very clear. God does not want us to shut down our desires. Hopefully, if you've been at Hope very long, you know that we emphasize this a lot. Our Savior throughout the Gospels will regularly engage people and ask them questions. Hey, what do you want from me? Even when it seemed obvious, blind Bartimaeus, what do you want from me? He was regularly inviting people to awaken their desires and to have the courage to bring those to him. But there is a huge difference in bringing your desires to the Lord and saying, hey, I don't know what to do with this, but I want to trust you versus demanding since I have convinced myself that I need this and you owe it to me. If you don't give it to me, then you're not worthy of my trust or worthy of following you. And so we notice a big difference between a desire and a demand is that a desire leads to humble request and prayer. Notice it says that Moses goes to the Lord. It doesn't say anything about the rabble and the people crying in their temps going to the Lord. But rather a, a demanding spirit is arrogant and proud. And it will often show up in panic, anxiety, obsession, and fear. An individual question we have to consider in light of this is, what is the quail that you are craving right now in your life? What are you even aware? And it could be multiple things. Just like we said with idols before, it's usually not just one thing. There's usually multiple things at work. The text goes on to tell us in verses 18 through 33, and we're not going to read all of it right now, that the Lord shows up and he says, my hand is not shortened, Moses. I'll give the people the meat they request. And what always happens when you obsess over something and you think that anything in this created world will give you a sense of satisfaction more than God, it always overpromises and underdelivers. So it says that very quickly in their greed, they gather and they gather and they gather all this meat and then it becomes loathsome to them. It begins to come out of their nostrils that they begin to hate the thing that they thought was going to give them some sort of satisfaction. And again, in Romans 1, Paul says, this is always what happens if God gives you what you think that you need more than him. Romans 1, 22, 24, and 26, claiming to be wise, they became fools. So God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, dishonorable passions, and a debased mind 
The Greek phrase there, gave them up, could also be translated, he granted aloud, he handed them over their desires so that they entrusted their hearts to them. In preaching on this passage, Tim Keller said, one of the worst things that God could ever do is answer your prayers when you ask for something more than him. How scary is that to consider? Again, I ask, are you aware at all of what the quails are in your life that you think you need so badly? Often it's a good thing that you don't become aware becomes kind of an ultimate thing. And so for us right now, case in point, we've talked about this. I brought it up before, the constant um, rezoning conversations that are happening in South Charlotte about where kids are going to go to school, Myers Park, South Mac, or Providence. The third draft that just came out this week um, basically set it up where our daughter Lucy, if it stays the way it is, will go to high school, and almost all of her friends from Carmel Middle will go to different high schools. So when we see this, not surprisingly, she's sad, we're sad, Stephanie's really upset. And so we're talking about it and what should we do? Should we contact the school board? And because by God's grace, I've been sitting in this text all week, I said, well, we're really assuming that, that God's best for our daughter is that she go to high school where we want her to go with all of her friends. But, but we don't know that, right? In the words of Garth Brooks, I thank God for unanswered prayers. <laughs> I mean, I'm serious, right? When he says, he goes back to a you know, high school football game and introduces his current wife to his high school sweetheart, and he says, you know, as I introduced them, the past came back to me, and I couldn't help but think of the way things used to be. Referencing his former girlfriend, he says, she was the one I had wanted for all time, and each night I spent praying that God would make her mine, and if he'd only grant me this wish I wished back then, I'd never ask for anything again. And he says, now I thank God for unanswered prayers. And so I don't just say that and joke because I like country music, but I like the absolute intensity that he communicates because that's true. What he's saying is that my high school self demanded, this is the only prayer you ever have to answer. That could easily show up for us now. God, this is the only prayer you ever have to answer for our daughter is fix this school situation or fix my job situation or fix this situation over here versus, God, I don't really know what's best for my daughter or for myself. Proverbs 26 says, do you see someone who's wise in their own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Lord, help me more than anything else to trust you. This is why our Savior Jesus, who was gentle and lowly in heart, said the thing you need to pray most is not give me what I am convinced I need, but our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom needs to come and your will needs to be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the thing I need most. Oh, forgive me for all the foolish ways that I forget that. And I determine and convince myself that this path forward is the only way that good things can happen. And when that doesn't come about, I then turn and use it as evidence to try to condemn you as a picture of utter foolishness. But notice the way he answers Moses' cry for help. In verses 16 and 17, the Lord says to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting. Let them take their stand there with you, and I will come down, and I will talk to you there. I will take some of the spirit that is on you, and I will put it on them, and you shall bear the burden of the people, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. Translation, he answers in a gracious and loving way Moses' request when he actually sends a plague on the people. 
What's the difference? I love the way Crab, again, in Inside Out, says this. He says, when a suffering saint pours out the sorrow of his soul, our Lord reveals himself as his great high priest, a caring advocate who is touched by struggles. But when that sorrow has been twisted into a bitter spirit of demandingness, his lament is met by the steely glare of a surgeon who's ready to cut out the disease with a glistening scalpel. God is unalterably opposed to a demanding attitude on the part of his creatures, no matter how severe their suffering. His ears are open wide to hear the cries of lament and pleas for help, but he will not come to a negotiating table to consider terms from angry people. God opposes the proud who demand, but gives grace to the humble who express hurt. And it's interesting to consider the way he gives grace to Moses and his moment of brokenness and, Lord, I can't bear the weight of this people. He gives him elders. He says, I'm going to give elders to come alongside you and help bear up the weight of shepherding these people. See, the term for rabble in verse 4 um, is in the masculine, meaning there was a group of sinful, complaining men that stirred up dissent among the people and it spread like wildfire. And what does God do in light of Moses' request to counter that? He says, I'm going to give you more elders that will stand shoulder to shoulder. And when the people in the community begin to complain and demand and crave things that God hasn't promised to give, they are meant to remind God's people of his loyal love. This is what Larry Crabb says in The Men of Courage. He says, elders knew that stories of God's loyal love were a necessary anchor for continued trust. The retelling of those old stories conveyed a vital message. God is faithful to his people. Time and time again, he has intervened on our behalf. He has proved his goodness. And he is the same God now as he was then. So take courage, have faith. Don't forget what he is like and what he has done. Now the elders that God raised up in this story were meant to go and do that among the people by reminding them specifically of the Exodus event that had taken place. Fast forward now, the greater Exodus that that was pointing to, which has been accomplished by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is what we need elders to remind us of. You know, I need to repent and apologize for what I said last week because I've had an angry and demanding and really just like a prideful complaining spirit. When we stood up here and introduced all the new women shepherding team members and Cece and Cindy weren't here, but I gave you all a shout out. We love you all so much. And I said, what an answer to prayer these women are who are so, Keller said that loving your neighbor as yourself means that you seek to meet their needs with the same energy, eagerness, and joy. So one of the just simple ways we can test I'm actually seeking to love my neighbor is their eagerness and a willingness versus a delay and I'll pray for you and somebody else will hopefully handle it. And all these new women shepherding team members we have have been so eager and so quick. And my wife, Stephanie, said that. She said, these women, as soon as I let them know something's going on in the body, are so eager, multiple women, I'll go, I'll go, send me. And I said, I'm unbelievably thankful and disheartened that we don't have any men wanting to serve as elders. And I need to apologize and repent because the last thing I ever wanted to do is to shame the men in our congregation. And thankfully, Andrew Holbrook came up to me and was like, bro, look, after the service, that's not okay. The way you just said that is not okay. I wanted to communicate, I think, in, in some sense, the weight I feel similar to Moses as the Lord continues to add to our number daily those that are being saved, 
which we're so thankful for. Um, there's a weighty calling, but it's a beautiful calling. And, and, and I don't exactly know what to do. I know that I need to do more clearly what Moses is doing, which is crying out to the Lord, and that is going to be the focus of my heart in this sabbatical versus having a demanding and complaining spirit. But that's something that we need, that, that we as a church need to own. We regularly have six to 800, 600 to 800 people coming in here, and we have two to three elders that are exhausted, that they are being weighed down so heavily. And so God is calling some of the men in this room to sacrifice in certain areas of life in order to take up your cross and follow Jesus on the front lines of doing the very thing that Crab said to remind us of God's loyal love as an anchor for trust in our lives. And so I want to finish with this quote, and then I'll pray. Allender says, in Leading with a Lamp, and this is something our session has been reading the last year, here's the hard truth. If you're a leader, you're in for the battle of your life. Nothing comes easily. Enemies outnumber allies, and the terrain keeps shifting under your feet. Leading is very likely the most costly thing that you'll ever do, and the chances are very good. It will never bring riches or fame or praise in exchange for your great sacrifices. But if you want to love God and others, and if you long to live your life now for the sake of eternity, then there's absolutely nothing better than being a leader. And I would add on that, a leader in the local church. It was beautiful how Keller easily could have left the local church 15 years ago and just been this celebrity author and speaker, but he poured his life out primarily in Redeemer Presbyterian Church because the local church is an outpost of the kingdom of heaven. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we, I just confess that it feels like we're walking away, leaving so much meat on the bone from this passage, but I know that your spirit can do so much more work than I ever could with my words. Someone honoring Keller said that he always said less than he knew, and I think that I say more than I know, <laughs> so forgive me for that. And I just pray that you'll stir in our hearts, both by your spirit to convict us of all the sinful ways that we demand and crave things that we think will be good for us that really evidence how foolish we are. And then instead, you'll give us a posture of brokenness and humility, even one like our Lord Jesus, who in the Garden of Gethsemane gave you his desire, Father, if there's any other way that this cup could pass from me, but not my will be done, but yours. Help us to live with a desire that your kingdom will come to keep in step with your spirit and I do pray that you will raise up more and more people who want to lead, who want to serve, leading with a limp, aware of their need of grace and desiring to show people the beauty of Jesus. And so do that work. We thank you that you're a God who can do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. So we give that all to you. In Jesus' name, amen.